Buddhist Geeks. Seriously Buddhist, seriously geeky. Episode 159, Mastering the Jhanas. This week, we speak with the only two Western lay practitioners who are authorized to teach the concentration meditation practice in the lineage of Paak Sayadaw, the famous Burmese jhana master. This is part one of a two-part series. Buddhist Geeks is supported largely by the generosity of our listeners. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a one-time or monthly recurring donation by visiting BuddhistGeeks.com forward slash donate. Hello, Buddhist Geeks. This is Vince Horn, and I'm joined today over Skype with two jhana teachers, Tina Rasmussen and Steven Snyder. Thank you guys so much for taking the time to speak with me this morning. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Vince. Yeah. And today, um, since you teach the jhanas, that's going to be the topic that we wanted to explore with you. And just to share a little bit of background for the listeners out there, you guys have been meditating for quite a long time, a few decades apiece at least. But recently, in 2005, you went on a two-month retreat with uh, Venerable Pa'ak Sayada, who's a very kind of well-known and well-regarded teacher in the Burmese tradition. He teaches these kind of traditional Vasudhimaga jhana practice. And so you went with him, and from my understanding, correct me if I'm wrong, please, you were two of the first Western lay yogis, meaning you weren't monks, who were able to complete his training to kind of the satisfaction or the the specifications, I guess, if you will, the standards, the high standards that he has for that training. And then he asked you to begin teaching, and since you're already partners, um, you're teaching together. Right. Yeah. And so you've started leading, um, recently leading retreats at Cloud Mountain Retreat Center, a two-week retreat at the end of the year, and you're teaching, I guess, the same system that you were taught. Right. Mm-hmm. Nice. And and you also wrote a book recently that just came out through Shambhala on the jhana system that Paak teaches, kind of a, a presentation for Westerners. I know he's written a couple books, and I, I looked at one of them called Knowing and Seeing, and it was just like such a behemoth. <laughs> really technical, just hard hitting, but it was really tough to read too. And it seems like this book that you've presented is is maybe more accessible for Westerners, like a good place to start. It's called Practicing the Jhanas. Traditional concentration meditation is presented by the Venerable Pa'ak Zayada. Yeah, so I wanted to just ask you guys some questions around your experience practicing the jhanas, what you've learned teaching them, and just about the jhanas in general. I guess maybe a good place to start would just be to ask for a little bit of an overview of the training you actually went through with Pa'ak on that two-month retreat. And since in the book you really write also from your first-person experience, like how you were actually experiencing these states and the training leading up to them, it'd be cool to hear both some of that first-person subjective report and also what kind of technique you're doing and and that sort of from the outside as well. Mm-hmm. Sure. Well, Probably the easiest way to give you a sense of the practices that we did in the two-month retreat that we spent with the Saida would be to just give you a brief overview of the progression of the Samatha practice. Would that be helpful? Yeah, that's great. Let's do it. So this is from the chart that's at the back of our book. And I'll just go through this really briefly. Basically, our whole book outlines each of these practices. So Pawak Saida uses the Anapanasati, the mindfulness of breathing, as the main object that you start the Samatha practice with. So you start with mindfulness of breathing at the what we call the Anapana spot. It's kind of a territory that's in between the upper lip and the nostril. So you're not actually following the breath into the body or out of the body. You're knowing it somewhere in that vicinity. Then that object is used, there's a whole, we actually have added a whole new chapter to our Shambhala version of our book on the territory from the time you first sit down, first sit, to first jhana. And there's a lot of sort of technical details in that region. And that's where really most of the people spend the majority of time is in that territory. So we won't go into all the detail of that, but eventually at some point, if the practice progresses, the first jhana will arise and then you use the mindfulness of breathing to go first, second, third, fourth jhana. And one, one thing also, Vince, is as we're presenting this, we're really trying to reframe it rather than people get jhana as a kind of attainment. 
we're framing it as when jhana arises mm. because it actually is more it's technically more true how that works yeah. and it takes it out of the personal in terms of i went on retreat and either i got it or i didn't get it you see and if it's working with purification of mind then as part of the purification of mind did jhana arise or not arise is certainly a valid question but it doesn't invalidate the process and the and what's gone on in purification of mind for the person. Mm. Right. There's a way we really look at it. And this is very helpful for, for yogis as a ripening where as the purification of mind is happening, at some point there's the potential for the ripening. It's like with an avocado. You can't put it in the oven and expect it to ripen. It's got to ripen in its own time. So that's really more how the actual process of the purification of mind works and then if a jhana arises as a result of that it's more of a byproduct than the point of the practice i see okay so then we have the first four jhanas then in this progression as you know the buddha had about 40 meditation objects so there's many many objects that are part of the samatha practice so the way the side out teaches the progression you then go to the 32 body parts practice and we won't go into a lot of detail, but this is a practice in which you take different body parts as the object and then, then, then focus on them in groups. And one of the 32 body parts is the skeleton. So then after you've done the 32 body parts, then you use the skeleton as the object. Really working towards focusing on the back of the skull as the object, which bears a strong resemblance to the white casina. And that becomes a stepping stone to doing the casinas. A casina is really a, a mind-produced image of a disc-shaped object that's either a color or an element or light or space. So there's 10 casinas, and I'll just read them off. White, Nila, which is kind of a blue, black, brown color. Yellow, red, earth, water, fire, wind, light, and space. So then you shift from the Anapanasati and you use each of those casinas as an object to go through the four jhanas. So you can imagine that gets pretty intense spending that amount of hours with a new object building the concentration. Then the earth casina is used as a starting point to access the immaterial jhanas. And then the progression of the practice goes through the four immaterial jhanas the base of boundless space, the base of boundless consciousness, the base of nothingness, and the base of neither perception nor non-perception. And then the practice goes on to using all of the casinas as the object to go through the upper jhanas as well. And then once all of that is done, then the practices switch over to the sublime abiding. So we know these in the West as the Brahma Viharas. And that's done very similarly to what we've practiced here. And then the last of those is the protective meditations. And these are really important going into the Vipassana practice as a kind of a refuge for the practice. And those are the recollection of the Buddha, the recollection of death, the metta practice, yeah, so those are the protective meditations. And then you go on to four elements, which is the ending of the Samatha practice and the beginning of the Vipassana. We can talk more about that when we talk about Vipassana, if you'd like. Yeah, yeah, sure. Maybe it'd be helpful just to give a sense. When you describe it this way, it sounds like it's this very quick thing. And yet, I know reading reading your descriptions, like that you're spending, for instance, three hours in a particular kind of state. And so I wonder maybe if you could say a little bit about the actual state, if you can talk about it, and how you're kind of defining or describing jhana. Well, there's three levels of concentration, and this is where what we found with yogis coming to us, some of whom have maybe done other practices, is that there's a lot of confusions about the levels of concentration, momentary access, and absorption. Because the jhana factors of joy, happiness, one-pointedness, and applied and sustained attention arise even in momentary concentration. So a lot of times people will think that just because they're feeling PT, that's jhana. In the Pawak tradition, there's very distinct stages between momentary access and full absorption that are very different. And also there's the jhana masteries, which in the detailed version, which we learned, and it's our understanding that we're the only... Um, 
Western lay people who have been taught the detailed version. Of the Samatha with the Saido. Right. So there's five jhana masteries, and one of those, especially with first jhana, is to be in the full absorption for three hours. Uninterrupted for three hours. Yeah. What is that like from the inside? Like, what's it like to be interrupted or, or to be uninterrupted? People get confused sometimes about what jhana is, and there is awareness, obviously, in that condition, in that state, of the object and of the jhana factors. So it's very, um, you know, I mean, this is a tranquility and concentration practice. So there's a lot of serenity and there's a lot of one-pointedness on the object. When the concentration gets strong enough, the awareness really locks onto the object in a way that is very stable. The side out talked to us about what he calls slight imperfection of jhana, where you might kind of pop out into a high level of access and then go back in. And if that's not happening too much, then that's considered to be full absorption. Mm. But if there's thought arising, that is not jhana. In this tradition, that's one of the characteristics of jhana is that there is no thinking. Mm -hmm. Right. So, you know, this is where a lot of people, I think, get confused about access concentration versus full absorption because even with the retreat we just did, there were yogis who had really high access concentration. The jhana factors were all present. But there's a whole progression with the nimitta which is a, a visual light effect that is a byproduct of the mind unifying. And that becomes an integral part of actually the full jhana absorption arising. So people could have access concentration in the jhana factors without ever really having a full absorption. If you've never experienced the full absorption, it's easy to think that that is a jhana. And in this tradition, those are some of the distinctions. Okay. And, well, one other distinction is in, in this tradition, we never take a, a jhana factor as the object. And some of the presentations that are available in the West, that is part of the, the practice. Right. So, in, in this practice, and, and it really makes sense if you think about it logically, the Buddha was trying to help people be free from suffering from attachments that were from either desire or aversion or delusion. And it's pretty pleasant when those jhana factors start arising. So to shift your whole awareness over to a jhana factor really cultivates a lot of desire. And when you're using instead something neutral like the breath, there's a way that the practice can progress in such a way that you're actually purifying the mind stream because you have a neutral object. And so as the first, second, third, fourth jhana progress, in the second jhana, PT, which is joy or rapture, after the second jhana and moving on to the third, that drops. So if you have a lot of attachment to the jhana factors, in a way you're cultivating desire. So when you're using a neutral object like the breath, it's easier to, first of all, build the concentration because your object isn't changing all the time. And secondly, you can really experience the purification of mind in such a way that actually supports the practice more fully. And it's important to make the distinction that the jhana factor is the result of concentration. So if PT is arising, that's different from actually feeling emotional joy because the PT is being produced based upon the level of concentration. So if one then moves to that as an object, one is no longer concentrating on the breath. So sooner or later, that concentration begins to wane and that PT produced by concentration is going to fade. But if you're actually just finding joy in your body or in your heart, you're thinking of a loved one, you're listening to music that's beautiful or seeing something in nature that's beautiful, that's not PT because it's not produced based on the concentration, if you follow. Okay, interesting. And you guys are already started to hint at this with talking about the purification of the mind stream. And I wondered if you could maybe share a little bit about what the benefits are because, you know, we're such a a benefit-oriented utilitarian culture, um, what the benefits are of, of the kind of training in jhana and the mastery of jhana traditionally? Sure. Well, probably the best place to start is to look at it as a daily practice. And the concentration practice as a daily practice, it's the very same practice. It's bringing the awareness to the breath as it crosses what we're calling the anapana spot, which is that territory Tina referred to between the nostrils and the upper lip which is also not the skin, so I want to make that distinction. As a daily practice, one can do concentration meditation 
which then both develops the concentration, the ability to focus and turn away from distractions that are taking one off. Because clearly, for example, right now, if we were to try to focus our, our awareness on our breath, various things would pull us off of that. So we can see not only what our patterning is around distraction, hindrances, we can also see how to bring it back. And each time we bring it back to the object, we're in effect strengthening that muscle, if you will, of concentration and also cultivating a disinterest in what's distracting or pulling mm-hmm. us away. So one of the metaphors we use for this territory is the surf zone. Tina was a scuba diver at one point and here in California you can see the scuba divers on the beach sometimes and they'll get all their gear on and then begin to walk backwards into the ocean. And of course they need to because of the flippers otherwise they'll fall down. There's a nice parallel to this practice because one is moving backwards there's a way you can't see necessarily the waves that are coming and the waves can come and be a distraction they can sort of knock you about and occasionally one can be big enough to knock you down where you might lose your mask might fall off the breathing apparatus the mouthpiece might fall out and of course then what do you do you straighten your gear out rinse out the sand and you proceed so using that surf zone metaphor when one first goes into this practice, the initial waves that one meets or meet one are the exterior distractions. So for example, on retreat, it can be things like someone near you is breathing too loudly, that you can hear birds singing outside, someone's coming in or out of the meditation hall in a way that's distracting. It's all these external stimulus that can be distracting. And as those settle and as the concentration deepens, then it's the internal distractions that will be coming up. Our habituated thinking, the various defilement, as Tina mentioned, the, the, the greed, uh, aversion, and delusion patterning that people have, and the hindrances that people have. And, and the hindrances are classic in Buddhism, which are sense desires, one, ill will, aversion, two, sloth and torpor is three, restlessness and remorse is four, and five is doubt. So those start coming up where people will have a reaction to the practice of this is difficult or everyone else is getting it, I'm not. All these kinds of things come up. And again, one keeps returning to the object, which is the breath crossing at the anapana spot, knowing the breath as it crosses. And so that's always our object. The instruction here is very simple. The application is very challenging because of our own patterning and our own distractions. And every time we turn away, Vince, our connection to this patterning, our connection to our thinking, we start moving away from kind of how we see ourselves and who we are. And that lessens that attachment and allows the practice to begin developing in what, as we can refer to it, where the practice begins to do you. Yeah, so there's, I mean, with the purification of mind, at its most basic, Stephen talked about strengthening the muscle. So we're really cultivating the ability to turn away from things that cause us to suffer. That's the most basic benefit, and people can see this in daily practice, and even more so when they've done an intensive period, like driving a car. Somebody could cut me off in traffic, and I could feel cranky about that for two minutes or five minutes, and who's suffering as a result of that? I am. Or I could be disinterested and be able to turn away from it because there's a space that's been cultivated because when I do this practice over and over again, that's what I'm building within my own capacity is the ability to turn away from things that cause me to suffer. So what we see is that people can have habit patterns that can be reconditioned to some extent by doing this practice. And part of that loosening of the patterning is very helpful as one moves on in this practice. It's both that and also the concentration, the laser-like quality of the concentration that one then moves into Vipassana with, where Vipassana, of course, is a purification of view. So it's really an examination and uprooting of our attachment. And in this tradition, that has to do with an analysis through this kind of concentration of materiality, mentality, and then dependent origination along with some other practices. Right. So the Buddha talked about the jhanas and the concentration practice all the time. I mean, if you really look at the suttas, he talked about it constantly. 
I think it's in about a third of the suttas. And he was doing this practice at the moment of his death. So the idea that it's irrelevant and it wasn't an integral part of the path really doesn't bear up if you read what he actually said. Really, where does it fit in the place of the progression? You've got the sila, the wholesomeness, which we could talk about, but we probably won't right now too much, but we do emphasize it in our teaching. And then you've got the samatha, which is the purification of the mind stream. So here, the work is being done internally in terms of your own mind stream being more and more free of hindrances, for one thing, having a settling, which is the serenity, and then, as Stephen was saying, developing this laser-like concentration that can then be turned towards other things, either in daily life or in spiritual practice in the vipassana. And then you've got the vipassana where you're actually using that. So to go to the vipassana without that, it can be done, but wouldn't you rather have a laser-like awareness with which to do it? And this is why the Buddha thought it was so important. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com conference. Do you dig Buddhist Geeks? Well, you at least made it through one episode. If you appreciate what we're doing, if you want to support what we're up to and also get access to some bonus content and early access to the podcast, you might want to consider becoming a Buddhist Geeks patron. You can find out more at patreon.com slash Buddhist Geeks, or just go to BuddhistGeeks.org and click become a patron. Patrons get early access to the podcast and can also get bonus content, preparation calls with guests before we have them on the show where we talk about what we're going to talk about and other kinds of bonus material content related to the show that we only prepare and offer to patrons. So please support Dharma in the age of the network. Please support Buddhist geeks. You did make it all the way through a whole episode, so there might be something there. Buddhist Geeks. Seriously Buddhist, seriously geeky. Episode 160. The Jedi Mind Training of Concentration. We're joined again this week by meditation teachers Tina Rasmussen and Steven Snyder to discuss the purification caused by concentration, what they call the thinning of the meat. We also discuss the way that deep concentration can lead to liberating insight. This is part two of a two-part series. Buddhist Geeks is supported largely by the generosity of our listeners. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a one-time or monthly recurring donation by visiting BuddhistGeeks.com forward slash donate. Following on on some of the traditional benefits, I was wondering if you've noticed any benefits in your own practice that maybe weren't so clear when you read the traditional texts or from your teacher, for instance. Like if if there are things that you've noticed have really been of benefit that you maybe didn't expect. Yeah, actually, one of the things that we're hoping to contribute to the conversation about this practice is what we're calling the thinning of the me. And we talked a little bit about how when a full jhana absorption arises, it's not like I went into jhana. 
that would be an incorrect statement. Awareness is experiencing jhana, but the idea that there's a me who's in there saying, oh, I'm in jhana, that is not how it happens. That's not the experience of it. So just for a full jhana absorption to arise, there has to be a certain amount of loosening of the aggregates just for it to happen. So this is where, you know, if you look at what you were talking about, jhana light or lighter forms of the jhanas, we're not sure that that's really cultivating the thinning of the me because it may not be full absorption. We don't know because we haven't done those practices, so it's a little hard to say. But one of the main benefits we found personally and that we also are really seeing with other people that is surprising to them and really much more profound in some ways is this thinning of the me. So what's happening when, if you really look at the whole progression up to the eighth jhana, you've got the material jhanas, which are all based on objects that are in materiality, so like the breath. And even within those four jhanas, there's more and more thinning of the me. So you start with, say, the jhana factors where joy may be more predominant, and then that drops, and happiness is more predominant in the third jhana, well, that's much more subtle. Then in the fourth jhana, really, the only two factors are one-pointedness and equanimity. So if we have a lot of attachments, those are going to have to be purified out of our attachment base or also out of our fear as you progress through those four jhanas. Then going into the upper jhanas, the way that the Buddha framed them, he talked about them as realms. And that is really how we experience them, that they aren't the same as the lower jhanas. They're a whole different category. And they're actually realms of being that, if you think about it in reverse order, mirror the progression from the unconditioned down through more and more density down through materiality. So just mm-hmm. to give you an example of that, if you start with the unconditioned, the eighth jhana, which is the closest to that, is neither perception nor non-perception. I mean, what does that even mean? It means non-duality. It means that the mind can't hold it. So for the eighth jhana to arise, there can't be any thinking, even in access concentration. So this is the most subtle, most refined possible experience of awareness without being actually aware of the unconditioned. It's like right next to it. Then you have nothingness or what we, we call it no-thingness. So now you're, you've got the void basically from which everything manifests. Then after the void, you've got consciousness. So you go from the unconditioned through a non-dual kind of frame into nothing, into the void. From the void comes the consciousness that creates everything. From that creates the space that holds all of materiality, and then right next to that is the form jhanas, where things actually start manifesting down to form, and here I am meditating on my breath, with every breath orienting my consciousness towards the unconditioned. So you see the power of that? I mean, here Mm. doing this practice, we're turning our awareness towards the unconditioned, whether we get all the way up to the eighth jhana or not, whether even get into the first jhana. We're orienting, and that is the purification that's happening that really we can see in working people that there is a thinning of the me that's happening just by doing that. I'm loosening the aggregates, or the aggregates, better said, the aggregates are loosening as a result of that endeavor. Hmm. And people are seeing this as they move back into their life fence where the normal things that snag them, the normal way that they take themselves to be has been loosened because they've turned away towards that what we're calling the unconditioned they're turning away from the condition the normal the patterning the me that i towards the mystery yeah and so really that creates more freedom and again we saw this in the in the retreatants as they returned to their life we did a, a feedback form and they commented that they really were seeing a difference going back into their life it just creates choices where before there was a patterning if this happened this was my reaction this is who i am And now it's like, well, is this who I am? Is this the choice I want to make? Or do I want to choose something different in relation to this kind of situation? Where, as Tina said, the driving, somebody cuts you off driving. There becomes a choice. Do I want to get angry? Do I want to feel like they're invading my space? Or do I not? Well, and it breaks, it's starting to break down that habit pattern. And the cycle of suffering. 
Yeah. So there's to us the, this whole orienting ourselves towards the mystery and the thinning of the me that has to happen for a full jhana absorption to arise is essential before doing vipassana because in vipassana you're really seeing everything we take to be how reality works as the matrix you know it's not like the the matrix it is the matrix yeah and this is extremely different way of perceiving reality so without this thinning of the me that's happening during the purification of mind how can we really expect the vipassana to do its full job this is why the Buddha really encouraged people to undertake the Samatha first. Now, if they aren't a person who that can be possible for, then you go straight to Vipassana. But to just skip over it without even trying was not what the Buddha recommended. He thought you should at least give it a try for all these benefits that we've just been talking about. Right. Yeah, I know traditionally in the Pali Canon, he talks about those that wake up using jhana and then those that do more of the drive vipassana um, path and and that's one thing i I wanted to hear maybe a little more on is just what have you found now working with other people and of course you know many other people who've done these these practices i mean obviously of the people on that two-month retreat you were probably the only two to complete the training there so it seems pretty clear that there's a pretty high bar in terms of completing this training and also it seems like it can be a training that takes quite a long time and maybe either people don't have the time or they may not have the proclivity or the capacity to develop concentration to that degree. I'm wondering what you think about that. Sure. Well, again, this gets back to the initial distinction between getting the jhana and purification of mind because in the, in the retreat we just led with there were 30 people, everybody, I would say without exception, reported that they had some level of purification of mind. They had some concentration develop. They had some cultivation of disinterest in their own patterning, in their own thought cycles, etc. So right away there, there was benefit. So these people went home with benefit. And for some people, jhana did arise. So it is going to happen. It's really a question, a couple of questions about really how much purification is necessary. There's also some people that really need to do a little bit of metta before they start this practice to feel very seated before they begin because there is a sense sometimes that this is, it's a big deal. You know, you're turning away from who you understand yourself to be and turning towards the mystery. And part of the reason it's called the mystery is because we don't know. We don't know what it is. We don't know what it's going to be like. And what we're trying to communicate to people is the you that you know yourself as, you're not taking this trip. The awareness is taking the trip, is moving through the progression of practice. So that sounds conceptual right now, but when you're actually doing it, there's something real that begins to happen that feels very personal to people. So some of that is the comfort they have with doing that. We think there are people that definitely have they're able to to just sort of sit down and, and begin pretty quickly. And other people, it takes a little more time to develop for the purification, for that ripening. You know, if you buy a bag of green apples at the store, which apples are going to ripen quicker? We don't know. It's based on a lot of circumstances that are outside our control. Mm. And yet, not one apple is better than another. They just ripen when they ripen. In the same way, purification of mind happens when it happens to the point it's almost like it isn't quite like this, but it feels this way. Like we have to get to a certain vibration level in our energy. And when it matches first jhana, then first jhana will arise. Yeah, for us, what we've seen is that this practice is relatively new, not only in the West, but in Asia. And as it's migrated over here, there's been in our view of things, a lot of confusion about what it is, about even what is a full jhana absorption versus access concentration versus momentary, and also what is the point of the practice. And in true American fashion or Western fashion maybe, we look right at the end point and think, oh, I either got jhana or I didn't get jhana. And it's not really the most mature way of looking at the practice in terms of what the practice is actually designed to do. And that's where the purification of mind, which is what it's actually called, becomes a much more sophisticated way of looking at what you're doing when you're actually doing the practice. What we found, it was really amazing working with so many yogis and seeing how it worked with people other than us. 
and it's like an inherent system built into our consciousness when we do this practice, which is probably why people have been doing it for, you know, three to 5,000 years, where when you go and you sit down and you try and focus on one object, the breath in this case, to the exclusion of everything else, and you start to be able to do it, then it's like there's a reinforcement loop of the jhana factors because it's pleasant. It's actually pleasant to sit. We had a woman in our retreat who had a broken broken spinal cord and had been in pain for 10 years and wasn't in pain for the first time. So there's a lot of rewards that come right from our own consciousness and doing this practice. And then what we would find is the minute people started clinging or having desire, wanting attainment or wondering, grasping at the next stage of the practice, their practice would erode. And they began to... To notice this and report this. Right. So you see it's it's self-reinforcing. They get the fact that because the jhana factors are there and they want them more, for this meditation I had two cups of coffee and I I had a light breakfast. So I'll try and repeat that again because clearly those are the the pattern. And then of course next time, guess what? It doesn't work that way because you're going in with a certain level of desire rather than letting it unfold. Yeah, it's changing all the time. We can see the impermanence in action. So... People could see that as their practice progressed, their own consciousness was doing all the work. It's an amazing mystery to actually watch it happen. And the fact that when you do something that isn't that wholesome, the practice starts declining. And when there's a wholesome orientation towards actually the purification of mind rather than grasping at attainments, then there's a whole world possible in terms of what's actually happening to the mind stream. Mm. And on on the retreat that we led for two weeks, there were people for whom jhana arose. Wow. We didn't know, and we have not and are not going to lower the standards that were taught to us by the Venerable Pauk Saidao because we think the Sangha is ready for an intense, rigorous practice. And that's what we want to teach. And we had Tom you know, the, the Jedi warrior thing. Yeah, yeah. At the, at the very end, we did a closer closing circle, and, and one, one person said that they felt like they were just completing two weeks of, of Jedi warrior training. And that's part of how we frame this, is that it's each person's individual practice. And really what we're doing is working some with providing content, but more as sort of trekking guides that we're trying mm-hmm. to help them, but they're the ones that have to do the trekking. We don't do it for them. There's no switch we can flip to give them jhana. They have to begin the process because it's their own orientation that they've got to learn to turn away from. And people saw a lot of freedom in that. It's really amazing because this whole mystery is built right into our own consciousness. And that's where we're hoping that with this framework for the practice that people can really see why the Buddha talked about it so much. It wasn't just about bliss states or attainments. It's really about purification of mind. Nice. Well, you you really know how to speak to the geeks out there with the whole Jedi thing. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, we loved that because that's what we felt like. That's what we want to cultivate. And we had two people there who were twenty one and twenty two years old, right. college students. They made this heroic effort to get there from Kansas, and they'd done one seven day retreat before, and they they were right there with everybody, really mm. giving a wholehearted effort. So. You know, you don't have to have 30 years of meditation experience to be able to engage in the practice. But it was nice for those people as well, because those people who had spent years and decades doing retreats, this really allowed them, as they would talk about it, to go very deep and to see their own patterning and move away from that. So that's why it feels so impactful to do this. Yeah, there's a real intensity with this that's more so than what you would have on a, on a normal Vipassana retreat. So that's something just to know in choosing to do the practice. That's why we're offering three-day retreats as well, so people can get a taste of it and see if it's for them or not. And the great thing, too, since, of course, each person is doing their own Jedi training here, there is a way, of course, it does parallel, because we are turning towards the mystery, the unconditioned. We are turning towards the force and letting that operate more and turning away from our own decision-making and our own patterning, you see. Right. Again, it comes back to that freedom that we have to be willing to turn away from our own issues. Yeah, and that comes right back down to every time when you're sitting there trying to stay with your object, building that muscle. It's real simple when it really comes down to it. Well, thank you for sharing that. It's really interesting, and it's cool to hear 
the experience of the people that have been practicing with you. The one thing I know in your book, Practicing the Jhanas, you you share your own experience up to the point that you had trained with Pa'ak, which was up through, you mentioned the five elements and then going a little further, kind of in that transitionary phase between the Samatha and Vipassana. And I know he teaches also, you go into Vipassana with the strength of the jhanas, like you'd mentioned. And so I'm wondering, um, I know at the time of the writing, you haven't gone on to do that formal training with him. Is that something you plan on doing? And if so, why? Yeah, we do want to do it. And we thought about it extensively. Because for one thing, for me, I've done the Vipassana practice as it's taught in mostly in the tradition of Mahasi Saidao and the Thai forest masters. That was how I came to meditation, really. And we thought at one point that the Saidao might not offer another retreat. We thought we wouldn't have the chance. And since he is doing this, probably his last retreat in the United States next year, we have decided to try and rearrange our lives so we can do it. And we actually are going to be trying to sell our house to do it. So it's a pretty big commitment. And it was really when we heard him talk, he was here for four months on his own personal retreat. And we had the wonderful opportunity to meet with him several times. And then he gave a series of talks. And when he really went through the Vipassana practice at one of these talks, we could see the magnitude of it and the power of it. And we're so really awestruck by the depth of it that we decided we wanted to go and try and try and do it and see what would happen. And really, I think the thing that strikes us the most about the way he teaches the Vipassana, in his progression, there's the same eight stages of insight that are there in the Mahasi Saidao version. And the forest tradition of Ajahn Chah. Yeah, but the practices actually mirror. If you're to read the suttas and read how the Buddha described his own enlightenment under the Bodhi tree and the stages, if you read the Pawak, I mean, he would say the Buddhas, but his presentation of what the Buddha taught, it pretty much mirrors what the Buddha describes in terms of analyzing mentality, analyzing materiality, the dependent origination, and then the final stages. You can see the Buddha's own unfoldment in the practice you're doing. Now, now Vince, one, one thing that's important on talking about how the Vipassana is taught by the, uh, the Saidao is that it starts with, again, the four elements, which is the last part of our book. And the four elements is earth, water, fire, and air. And one does these in such a way that it breaks down the body into these four elements and the 12 characteristics that comprise these four elements. So, one really gets to see the workings of the body to the point access concentration arises and one is able to experience their own body as the kalapas, which of course are subatomic particles. So, the commencement of this practice and the conclusion of the samatha is seeing your own body as subatomic particles. So, as Tina said earlier, like the movie The Matrix, the green squiggly lines, they aren't green squiggly lines, but they look like fireflies lighting up and going out just in split seconds, sort of a pile of these things. Right. So, it's like you're seeing the arising and the passing of materiality. Mm -hmm. Right. And so, the practice begins by analyzing some of these kalapas for materiality, seeing one's own body and then analyzing that to the point of seeing even the structure and the composition of the kalapas. And then that goes on to the analysis of mentality, breaking down the mentality into all the different levels of consciousness, etc. Yeah, say for example, where this gets really interesting to us is that if I'm looking at something and that's going into my awareness as sight, this practice actually analyzes the kalapas of the mentality that produce my thoughts. So, you can imagine if now you've seen basically all of materiality, not just your own body, but everything around you as subatomic particles arising and passing, and then your own thoughts, you're really breaking down the aggregates here to a level that you don't perceive reality the same way you used to anymore. You can't because this is actually a visceral experience. This isn't conceptual. So, it it can't help but change. I mean, Tina and I both in the book we talk about, we both got to the point of seeing the Kalapas, experiencing our own body as Kalapas. And even for a very short period of time, it's very impactful. 
Yeah, I mean, it's one thing to know through a microscope or through science that this is true, and it's like, well, big deal. So I'm, you know, there's subatomic particles, who cares? But when you're actually perceiving things that way, it does actually become like the matrix. I mean, this is part of the mystery. What is it? We don't know, but something is manifesting everything. Look around your room. We're looking at a desk. We've got chairs here. All of this is manifesting from something. And what is it? Well, we can't really know so much with the mind, but when you experience it directly for yourself and know that in your gut, it's different. It's different. You can't take yourself to be what you thought you were before. So this is why the Vipassana, in the way that it's taught by Pax Hayadaw, is really a pretty dramatic, direct experience of reality as different than what we take it to be. Cool. So this is, yeah, I mean, it is, it's really cool, but you can see that if there's a lot of attachment to me and my ideas and all these things, that's just not going to happen. Or if it does happen, it could be fairly disturbing. Yeah. So this is why you would want to be doing the progression of practice in the sequence that is most desirable as it was laid out with the sila, the samatha, and the vipassana. It's important to make the distinction also that with both the samatha and the Vipassana practices, they can be done both detailed and brief. Right. So there is that in all of Buddhism, it's presented this way. And the detailed for the Vipassana means coming in with some level of jhana experience. Well, we do know one person who did it without any jhanas. Right. But he had pretty developed access concentration. Yeah. So that was a little different. But as a general rule, that's why it's useful. And that's why at least having first jhana arise up to fourth jhana arise is really important to then transfer over to the vipassana. If one can do, of course, the entire samatha, that's the best because the level of depth that one can go, according to the sayadaw, is more. Right. Yeah, the sayadaw, he really suggested if the practice can progress at least to first jhana, then that brings a higher level of concentration than, you, than you're ever going to get in access doing the Vipassana because it's just not possible with an object that's changing to have more than access concentration. If one can progress up to fourth jhana, that's even better. And when I was about to go on to the Vipassana at the end of the two-month retreat, he wanted me to keep doing one sitting a day all the way up to the eighth jhana because then that resource was available to turn towards the Vipassana. Hmm. So it's kind of like powering up before. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Yeah. yeah, and I we could feel it. You know, when we started going to different objects, this is part of what's good about as you complete the jhana masteries and then you have to go through all these different objects. It's like weightlifting. You know, we could talk about strengthening the muscle. You're building that muscle on a bunch of different objects to make it stronger and stronger all the time. Hmm. Like cross-training. Exactly, <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's exactly. exactly it. And then there's one last part of the Vipassana. Do you want to talk about? Yeah, the last big segment is the dependent origination. And in this tradition, the way that's practiced is that one actually will, through meditation, will go back to the very first mind moment of this lifetime and then will make the leap into the last mind moment of the prior lifetime. And in this way, we'll sequentially go back and see prior lifetimes. And the importance of this is seeing how we got here today, most particularly our orientation towards liberation. That there's been a theme in which lifetime where perhaps we didn't really follow that and lifetimes where we did, it of course puts us more in touch with that, that for lifetimes there's been this hunger for liberation, this draw. Mm-hmm. And we can see that through the prior lifetimes. And then when one goes back sufficiently, one comes back to this lifetime and then turns the other direction and moves into future lifetimes and follows the future lifetimes to the point of becoming an arhant. So then one can see, oh, look at the choices that are going to be made up to the point of arhant. And I asked the Saida when he gave a, a public talk, I asked him, well, Saida, since one is doing this path, the Samatha Vipassana path, of course, one if one completes it the first time, then that may be the first stage of awakening in the Theravadan, which is the stream enterer. Of course, one is doing the path again, hoping that it will all work in such a way and the uprooting will take place in the Vipassana sufficiently to advance the stages of awakening. And my question was, wouldn't that automatically change the future lifetimes? Because, of course, with the Sotapanna, 
they have up to a maximum of seven more lifetimes before becoming an Arahant. And the next stage is a once-returner, meaning coming back one more time. So clearly there's a change. And he said, yes, absolutely it changes as you go through and do it again. If you did the pen origination again, you would only see the next lifetime. So it's fascinating that that's built into the system. And also, as Tina says, our own consciousness. It's all dovetailed into this. And it's hard not to have just immense, for us to have immense gratitude and respect for the Buddha and for our own teacher, the Pak Saidao, really maintaining this and thinking that this system, the Buddha's in effect designed this or recognized this 2,600 years ago, and it's still relevant to us sitting here as Westerners in the U.S. as modern people. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com conference. Do you dig Buddhist Geeks? Well, you at least made it through one episode. If you appreciate what we're doing, if you want to support what we're up to and also get access to some bonus content and early access to the podcast, you might want to consider becoming a Buddhist Geeks patron. You can find out more at patreon.com slash Buddhist Geeks, or just go to BuddhistGeeks.org and click become a patron. Patrons get early access to the podcast and can also get bonus content, preparation calls with guests before we have them on the show where we talk about what we're going to talk about and other kinds of bonus material content related to the show that we only prepare and offer to patrons. So please support Dharma in the age of the network. Please support Buddhist geeks. You did make it all the way through a whole episode. So there might be something there.